0: So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most
1: of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with a
0: goal well, of making energy both cheaper, but also completely clean, and so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than The World's well, biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year. But there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by 4. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. special. Hello and welcome to Off the Charts, a podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. Joining us today is Will Tor, the Executive Director of the State of Colorado's Energy Office. There's a lot of exciting work being done in Colorado in energy policy. There's a new governor, Jared Polis, who has set the goal of 100% clean energy in the electric sector by 2040. There's a lot of freshly minted legislation in Colorado to talk about that the governor just signed. And Will Tor has experience in both the energy and the transportation sectors. Before taking his current position, Will served as the transportation program director at the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project, as a member of the Colorado Air Quality Control Commission, as a Boulder County Commissioner, and as the mayor of the wonderful city of Boulder. Will was also director of the University of Colorado Environmental Center, and if we go a bit further back, he was a University of Chicago student, so this is something of a homecoming. Welcome back to Chicago, Will. Thank you. So we before we dive into the Colorado news, I want to start by asking you about how you've integrated your path. You left Chicago with a PhD in physics, and now you're in a field where disparate sciences like physics and economics come together to inform Policy. Can you tell us a little about how your education in physics informs your work now?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've found sort of very interesting, sort of working in the policy and political arena, is the extent to which decisions get made without people really understanding numbers or orders of magnitude. So there are, you know, lots of things around the interplay of climate and energy where it's You know, useful having some scientific background, but the biggest single place where where I find myself sort of bringing my background to bear is just looking at claims and numbers and asking, does that make any sense? Is that the right order of magnitude? Because there are just so many times when there are claims that are made that you start thinking about and realizing, you know, it's it has to be off by a factor of ten, or else there's something very different going on than you think is going on, and. So in some ways, I think that's been one of the more valuable things that I sort of brought from my scientific background.
0: Yeah, that's a very University of Chicago thing to do, (laughs) examining claims and numbers. What about um, just um, the challenges and opportunities of, of a field where all of these disparate sciences come together? Yeah. So...
1: You know, a couple of examples that that I would give of sort of interesting places where I see these coming together. You know, there's all of the attempts to sort of understand what are the implications of climate change for our state and for various sectors within our state. And to understand that both to inform, you know, what should we be doing around adaptation? You know, we have particular issues around water supply and around a lot of development in forests in the mountains where there's a lot of potential for much more severe forest fires going into the future. So we're sort of trying to understand that and understand what the probable future outcomes or range of future outcomes is going to be and what that means for policy today. And then intersecting with that are all of the decisions that we're making around our energy system and the focus on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, where in many ways, you know, when we look at what we need to do over the next decade, the questions aren't really scientific questions, they're economic questions and investment questions, and where what really has been important has been being able to sort of essentially make the case that there are significant cost savings uh, available by making a transition from, legacy coal plants to largely renewables mixed with some natural gas. And then we start looking into the future and the question of how we set policies in place today that will help us get where we need to be between 2030 and 2050, where all of a sudden there are all sorts of open science and technology questions about what do you need to do in the energy system to go from sort of deep emissions reductions to very deep emissions reductions. And so there's a lot of, I think, sort of fascinating interplay between those three areas.
0: Let's uh, get to Colorado. I think every state has an energy office, but in a lot of states they remain sort of low profile. So some of our listeners may not be clear on what their role is. Could you tell us just briefly about the energy office in Colorado? Yeah,
1: so the Colorado Energy Office is actually housed within the Governor's office. We so there we have two departments an Office of Economic Development and International Trade and the Energy Office that are directly housed within the, within the Governor's office. We are one of the energy offices that was originally created, you know, decades ago with Funding that came about due to basically oil companies overcharging people in the 1970s and settlement funds from that. And uh, these days, I I would say that our we're very much the policy shop for the the governor on trying to move an ambitious energy and climate agenda. So we we run some programs. So we run low-income weatherization program and a number of energy efficiency and energy finance programs. We run a lot of the state efforts around transportation electrification, and then we're just very engaged in developing policy proposals that go to the legislature, and we serve as the governor's voice to our regu- on energy to our regulatory bodies. So we intervene at our public utilities commission that has authority over electric utilities, and our Air Quality Control Commission that has a sortie over air emissions.
0: Nice, Um, and you mentioned an ambitious energy agenda. Your governor just signed about a dozen bills uh, in June that have big implications for energy, transportation, and climate. We, We won't have time to talk about each of them, unfortunately, but I wanna ask you about a few and start with transportation because of, I think, particular challenges for transforming that sector in Colorado. It's a western state, a frontier state with vast expanses and rugged terrain where vehicles, like an extension of the horse, can represent freedom for people. And the prospect of electric vehicles can be daunting in rural areas, of which Colorado has an abundance. And yet the state seems to be vigorously laying the groundwork for widespread electrification. Um, The governor signed a suite of bills just to prepare the state for electric vehicles. One develops infrastructure... To support electric vehicles, one sets aside parking spaces for recharging, another extends tax credits for EVs, another begins the process of addressing the impact of modernizing commercial vehicles. Um, How swift and how widespread do you expect this move to uh, electrified transportation to take hold in Colorado?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, I think I would start by saying that. I felt kind of like a kid in the candy shop this spring as we were working with the legislature, and by the end of the session I was kind of pinching myself at just how ambitious an agenda around climate change, utility policy, transportation electrification, oil and gas reform, and energy efficiency had moved forward. On the transportation electrification front, you know, I, th- I think a few things that are worth thinking about in terms of context. So one is that while Colorado is a, a state that, you know, is defined by our our mountains and that we do very much have, I think, a, a self-image as a rural state with, you know, visions of the cowboy. and But in fact, the vast majority of people in Colorado live along the, the front range in a urban and suburban corridor, basically from Colorado Springs to Fort Collins. So we're actually a much more urban state than many people realize. And when you think of sort of what's the iconic vehicles in Colorado, you know, people would first think of pickup trucks, but we we actually have a relative. we're in the bottom half of the United States. When you look at the percentage of vehicles that are actually pickup trucks, we have a lot of things that are classified as light trucks, but they're largely crossover vehicles and small SUVs. So in many ways, I would say our iconic vehicle is really a Subaru Outback. And so just to give a little bit of context there, there's been a real several years of action around transportation electrification in Colorado. So we're not really starting from scratch. It's interesting. You know, right now we're in the process of considering adoption of zero-emission vehicle standards, similar to the ones that California and nine other states have. And we actually have an electric vehicle um, market share among sales of new vehicles that is higher than almost all of the zero-emission vehicle states except for California and Oregon. So we're starting from, from a place where there's been a lot of work over a number of years to support, support the EV market. But our, our governor has sort of looked at this and has made some big commitments that basically did an executive order his first week in office to advance zero-emission vehicles, set a goal of nearly a million electric vehicles on the road by 2030. Right now we only, you know we're at a little over 20,000, so that's a, that, that's a big growth over the next decade. And the legislature was very active in, in moving EV policy this session. and uh, As you sort of described those bills, two that I would probably highlight, um, one was a bill on EV infrastructure, where it's, we are a big, a big state where even though most people live in the urban corridor, they want to be able to go all around the state, and in fact all around the west. And in survey work, it's become clear that having fast-charging access that will allow people to reach mountain destinations in Colorado but also in surrounding states is going to be really important to get to large-scale adoption. So one of the bills that we worked on allows electric utilities to invest in EV infrastructure and, in fact, requires electric utilities to develop plans and submit those plans to our Public Utilities Commission that show how they're going to support widespread transportation electrification. Um, the, going along was that there's actually a multi-state effort where eight Western governors have signed an MOU to build one way or another, and different states are taking different approaches mm-hmm. to build out the charging network along the interstate highways that connect all of our states. The, the other bill that I think was a really interesting one was the one that you mentioned sort of about new models of commercial vehicles that's really looking at ride sharing so it's looking at transportation network companies like Uber and Lyft and and is designed to first pull together stakeholders to to do a sort of collective study process but out of that to make recommendations to our state transportation department for a rulemaking on fees on those vehicles where the fees would be designed to incentivize the electrification of ride-sharing and to incentivize multi-occupant, multi-passenger trips. And it also sort of essentially sets the stage for coming back to the legislature with recommendations about... What should we be doing to prepare for an autonomous vehicle future? So as many other people have, we've taken a bit of a look at some of the potential positives coming from an autonomous vehicle future, but also the potential for an enormous increase in vehicle miles traveled. We kind of got attention of some legislators when we described a hypothetical baseball game, a Rockies Game in downtown Denver and essentially showed that if you had folks arriving in autonomous vehicles, that unless you had a very high per mile fee, that it would make more economic sense for people to leave their vehicles circling the downtown for hours than it would for them to park them. And you started thinking about what those implications were. So while we're going to, while the rulemaking will focus on like Uber and Lyft style vehicles, the intent is to really begin in experimenting with what are the types of policies that we're going to need in order to drive sort of future autonomous vehicle trips towards being both multi-passenger shared and electrified trips.
0: So you mentioned the um, large urban population in the urban corridor. And um, it seems like it might be easier to electrify transportation in that area than in the rural areas. Is there... A risk or maybe it's not even a risk just a possibility that you'll have different transportation technologies in different parts of the state so i think it is certainly the
1: case you know we're, we're already seeing when you look at where adoption is taking place that adoption has been greatest in in our front range urban corridor but we've also seen that there are several small cities in our rural area that have high levels of EV adoption. And we think that it's very important to make sure that we're investing in infrastructure across the state in order to make sure that no part of the state gets left behind. So in addition to the electric utility element, um, we're really focusing state investment on building out electric vehicle infrastructure in those rural areas where the short-term payment may not be as much. But we think it's really important that they be, are able to be part of the transition to, to
0: EVs over time. From what I've read, the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association hasn't been completely on board with electrification. And they've used this um, claim that the state has a predilection for trucks and sport utility vehicles. Yeah, To express that, because there aren't a lot of electric versions of those yet, that sounds like it might be both a technological and a psychological challenge yeah. to overcome. How do you bring along the
1: reluctant parties? Yeah. Well, you know, it's really interesting with uh, the automobile dealers because I would say individual dealers and a dealer's association are not necessarily the same. So I had a fascinating conversation several months ago with... Um, A local BMW dealer, where I started talking with her about what do you think of electric vehicles? How do your customers like them? And I got this gushing response, you know, talking about the BMW i3. She's like, These are wonderful vehicles. My customers love them. They fly off the shelves. My biggest problem is that BMW won't supply me enough vehicles to meet the demand. I then said, huh, well, you know, the state is talking about adopting a zero emission vehicle standard, which would really create a strong incentive for BMW to get you those vehicles. What do you think of it? And it was like I had flipped a switch. And I'm pretty sure that she was then reading from a script from the Dealers Association and said, oh, no, this is Colorado. Nobody wants electric vehicles here. People drive pickup trucks here. I was like, you're a BMW dealer. You were just telling me how much you love these vehicles.
0: What happened?
1: So... In practice, what we're seeing is that a lot of the individual dealers are actually embracing electric vehicles. The dealers association is not, and I think we have we have work to do there. Um, I think a we do face you know one real sort of challenge, which is that while we're not a big pickup truck state, we are a big crossover and SUV state. And in order to get really deep adoption of electric vehicles, we need many more models of crossovers, four-wheel drive vehicles, at least small SUVs. Um, on, the, on the positive side, when you look at the announcements that have been made by manufacturers, you know, between now and 2022, there will be about 20 you know, crossover and SUV models available So we're, we are really looking forward to those models coming to Colorado and are really advocating with dealers that they, or I'm sorry, with the manufacturers that they bring those vehicles to Colorado.
0: Um, Let's talk a little bit about getting people completely out of their vehicles, as opposed to switching to Mm -hmm. cleaner ones. You championed public transit and in urban infill in Boulder, and it's challenging even in a city to get people out of their vehicles sometimes. But of course, much more challenging in rural areas, where there may not be yeah. enough population density to support yeah. public transit. Uh, do you see a role for autonomous vehicles helping there? So maybe you know
1: I. I do think that we are likely to see a rather different system in our urban areas than in our more rural areas. You know, I think it's likely that we will transition to a world where transportation is electrified in both of those. But in our more rural area, as you start looking at the sort of the economics of shared autonomous vehicle fleets, and you need a certain level of density for that to, to really be functional so, at least over the medium term, I don't think that AVs, certainly shared AVs, will play a big role in our rural areas. I think they may play a significant role in our urban areas. And, you know, as with many places around the country, probably the most important decisions that we'll make that will determine how much driving takes place are really going to be land use decisions. And it's, you know, in our urban areas, it's a question of, are we going to allow housing to be built near the areas where we're allowing large amounts of employment to be built and whether we're going to be willing to put some restrictions on building out in the hin- housing out in the hinterlands far from where people work.
0: So these transportation changes are undoubtedly going to contribute to another major climate bill the governor signed, which is HB 191261 which sets goals for the state to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2030, 90% by 2050, and uh, requires the Air Quality Control Commission to develop the specific plan to make that happen. Do you expect Colorado, like California, to mandate that a certain percentage of vehicles will be electric?
1: Yes. So that's actually already moving forward. So that's what's known as a zero-emission vehicle standard. And... Uh, Governor Polis uh, committed to that in his executive order his first week in office, and we've formally initiated a rulemaking process at our state air commission on that that will culminate in public hearings in August. And while I can't predict the outcome of an independent rulemaking body, I think there's a good chance that the air commission, you know, based upon the record before them, will adopt a ZEV standard by the end of this summer.
0: How else do you see the Air Quality Commission um, pursuing yeah. this mandate? What other mechanisms yeah. do you anticipate?
1: So a couple of, of thoughts on that. First, I would say that while the legislation refers to the the Air Commission, the governor thinks that, that it's very important that this really be a much broader effort, that when you start thinking about the the significance of the changes that will be required to achieve deep reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, that you really need more than a sort of nine-person volunteer commission making those decisions. And so he has really tasked a large subset of his cabinet to work together on this. So we have an effort going forward in which the energy office, the state um, Department of Public Health and Environment that supports the Air Commission, our Department of Transportation, and our Department of Natural Resources will really be working together and sort of co-managing a scoping and study process. So over the next year, we'll be doing both a technical analysis of, of sort of decarbonization pathways for the state and managing a stakeholder process. That will inform both the administration's activities going forward, and recommendations that we'll bring back to the legislature for additional steps that are required. You know, there's a few things that are kind of obvious. You know, we know that our biggest source of emissions is electricity generation. We also know that the economics is aligned for deep reductions in emissions from electricity generation in Colorado. Our largest utility, Excel Energy that accounts for about 40% of electricity in the state, has already publicly committed to 80% reduction by 2030 and set an aspirational goal of 100% by 2050. In another bill of this session, we codified that so that they are now have a sort of legally required pathway to 80% reduction by 2030, and there's a mechanism laid out for them to submit a plan for approval and how the public utilities commission will approve it. We have a strategy for our large second largest utility, a large rural generation and transmission utility that serves all of our rural co-ops. And they agreed for the first time to come under the authority of our public utility commission for reviewing their electric resource plan in the same bill that is now going to apply the social cost of, carbon dioxide emissions to electric resource planning. So there's a, and meanwhile, you've got these old coal plants that cost about four and a half cents a kilowatt hour to operate. Whereas we can, we've seen through bids that are out there that you can build new wind plants with some battery storage for about 1.9 cents per kilowatt hour. So just the economics is really well, well aligned there. So that's you know, clearly our, our biggest near-term opportunity. You know, second big opportunity is in the oil and gas sector. that we've, you know, We're a big oil and gas producing state. And despite some important regulations that were adopted in 2014 around reducing methane emissions and volatile organic compound emissions from oil and gas, there, there's still big opportunities there. And another one of the bills that, that passed Senate Bill 181, which did reform of our oil and gas sector, directed the state um, air uh, commission to conduct rulemakings to essentially achieve all sort of potential um, cost-effective reductions in emissions from them oil and gas fuel cycle. And so starting this fall, they're going to be, as soon as they're done with the zero emission vehicle rulemaking, they'll be getting getting going on that. And um, an interesting University of Chicago connection there is that the University of Chicago is actually working with the state on helping to figure out remote monitoring of methane emissions from our oil and gas, oil and gas sector. Um, you know, a, a third obvious area, you know, our, Is transportation transportation is our second largest source of emissions we know we need to tackle it we know that's hard to tackle but we adopted the low emission vehicle standards last year adopting the zero emission vehicle standards now have you know whole set of initiatives moving forward to support electrification and kind of the next obvious thing to do is to consider a low-carbon fuel standard so in parallel with sort of the big scoping effort we have funded a for this next year, a feasibility study and stakeholder work on should we adopt a low carbon fuel standard that would, you know, essentially set a cap on carbon emissions from liquid vehicle fuels and require that to decline over time. And finally, another sort of obvious arena is buildings. We know that buildings are sort of our next largest sector after that. And it's Sort of like transportation, that's a tough sector because you're not just dealing with a few oil companies or a few utilities, but you have to affect a large number of independent you know, decisions by many individuals and businesses. Uh, but we will be working on a variety of strategies focused on buildings. We think one of the big opportunities will be building electrification, moving from burning natural gas in buildings to using especially electric um, heat pumps for water and space heating. And so we're doing a major analytical effort this year to set us up for potential legislation and program implementation next year. Uh, so those are some of the, the pieces that I think will be be moving forward at the same time that we do sort of this big economy-wide greenhouse gas reduction study.
0: So I want to ask you about a couple things you Good. mentioned. One was the um, monitoring of emissions. So Colorado is going to be doing its own emissions monitoring. I'm not really familiar with how they were monitored before. No. Was it the EPA?
1: Um, no. So one of the problems with soil and gas development is that they're – you, you have a large number of dispersed sites, and there has never been continuous emissions monitoring. So while the state regulates emissions from oil and gas uh, production, the, it's essentially done through inspectors who go out with infrared cameras, and given the tens of thousands of wells in our state, only a very small percentage can be inspected in any given year. Now we do have regulations that require self-monitoring and require the, the companies to do their their own inspections with IR cameras on a somewhat regular schedule. The, there's been a real lack of data. And it's a sector where it's really hard to analyze because Typically, you're estimating emissions from these bottom-up engineering approaches where you're saying, you know, there are X pneumatic controllers and XY compressors and there are assumed emissions rates and that's how you're determining how much the emissions are from oil and gas. Then you do um, monitoring through things like sending um, airplanes over and using satellite data and measuring actual atmospheric methane concentrations, and then essentially backcasting using meteorology to try to figure out where the where those emissions came from. And when you do that, you almost always find, huh, the emissions seem to be much higher than our assumptions. And the emissions aren't constant in time. It's not one of those things where you the same facility will have the same emissions over time. You have these sort of transient, really large emissions and then low emissions, and there's a lot of evidence that there's great heterogeneity among sites, so that 10% of sites may be responsible for 90% of emissions because something went wrong and there's just a valve that stayed open for six days. And so if we can actually get to a point where we have real-time emissions monitoring, it would have, I think, an enormous impact in in terms of being able to immediately catch those high emitters and potentially get really dramatic emissions reductions.
0: Excellent. And then another thing you mentioned was the social cost of carbon, um, which the Public Utilities Commission now has to consider uh, in awarding projects. What calculation are you going to use for the social cost of carbon?
1: So the... Our legislation refers to the social cost of carbon that was direct developed by the federal government's interagency working group on the social cost of carbon um, during the prior presidential administration. Um, it does allow future... the. It specifies that we should use the social cost of carbon used by the federal government going forward, but it does not allow it to be lower than the the cost that was adopted under the Obama administration. So effectively that means that it'll start at $46 per ton and inflate over time, and if we get an administration that is willing to sort of more fairly look at the science going forward, we would anticipate that 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 would move up.
0: So there's a lot else happening in Colorado that we haven't touched on, energy efficiency standards, building energy codes, community solar gardens, and energy improvement district, and we're just about out of time, but I want to give you an opportunity to talk about anything else going on that you're particularly excited about, anything that's around the corner.
1: Yeah, you know, I would say that going, going forward, one of the, the things that I'm really excited about is the 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 potential for doing more on energy efficiency. You know, we took some steps this year. We got appliance efficiency standards adopted. We did do some requirements for local governments to adopt one of the more recent building energy codes that are out there. But we know that there's just enormous opportunities for cost-effective investments in energy efficiency that we're not we're you know, barely touching right now. And so one of my priorities going going forward is going to be, I think, to be really mapping out the opportunities for building energy efficiency and looking at how we can do some state local government partnerships to to really test out the potential of some integrated programs. And just to give an example of what I mean that local governments have a lot of information that they don't really use for energy purposes. So local governments have databases uh, of building permits. That means they know how old every furnace and water heater is in their their city. That means that you can pretty much predict, you know, within a few years, when those are likely to need to be replaced. We could be developing programs in which we are targeting those buildings where we're pretty sure that within the next few years they're going to need to replace their furnace or water heater and we could get to them with targeted programs that we wouldn't be just given to everybody but we would be focusing That would say you know don't just replace it with the cheapest water heater that you can get overnight when this thing falls down we're going to to have a funding mechanism to help you replace it with a high-efficiency heat pump. And by the way, as long as the electrician is there, that's a great time to put in your level two charging station. And did you know that we've got a program that's going to allow you to replace your gas car with an electric car in a way that's actually going to save you money? And so... It's not totally baked, but I'm very excited about the, the idea of really sort of figuring out how we can do some state-local partnerships to test out some things that would really be focused on a combination of sort of deep energy retrofits, electrification of the buildings, potentially rooftop solar, and um, electrification of their vehicles.
0: So not long ago, uh, a lot of us remember Colorado was a red state. Um, and uh, I imagine there's a possibility it could flip again. Maybe not. But uh, how firm do you feel like the footing is for yeah. for these actions? How sustainable are they?
1: So, so Colorado is, you know, I would describe as a purple state. We were sort of purplish-red 15 years ago. We're sort of bluish-purple uh, these days. But, you know, up until this latest election, we had... One of our three branches of government, our state senate, was Republican and had been for six years. So it certainly would, would not be shocking if we were to move to having one of our branches of our legislature Republican again. I think it's very unlikely, giving, given the shifting demographics, that we would ever go back, well, never say never, but that we would go back to full Republican control of all three branches of government. So the likelihood of being able to roll back sort of legislation that has been adopted to date I think is pretty low. And given the nature of our electorate, I think it's pretty unlikely that the governor would would flip. So I think that the uh, sort of administrative branch and is likely to r- remain in Democratic control. So I think what we'll see is if we see some shifting back and forth in our state house or state senate, that it may reflect, that may affect the pace of sort of future legislation, but it's probably unlikely to really lead to any rollback of any of the initiatives that are moving forward today. know, one other thing that I, that I would note is that, you know, many of these issues don't fall neatly along partisan lines, and we have had some you know real bipartisan support in some of the important energy legislation that moved forward. In particular, I would notice we, note that we have one state senator, Senator Kevin Priola, who is a Republican from the su- suburbs of Denver who has been one of our biggest clean energy champions and we've had a number of other Republican legislators who have been quite supportive of many of the individual clean en- clean energy initiatives you know the dynamics to some extent really has changed along with the economics you know when you're in a world where utility scale wind and solar are half the cost of coal you know that really does start leading to a world where a wide variety of people regardless of their what political party they're in can sort of say huh what's not to like about cleaner and cheaper power
0: Will, thank you so much for giving us this insider's view on what has become one of the most exciting states for energy policy. Thanks also to our listeners, each one of you, for listening today. Please remember to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on the EPIC website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.